The content of this podcast should not be considered financial or investment advice. All interviews and discussions are opinions only, and the podcast has been created without taking into consideration the listener's financial objectives, financial situation or needs. Listeners should obtain independent advice before making any financial decisions. Hi, this is Barry Fitzgerald, Aaron Perro columnist for Stockhead. Welcome to another edition of the Explorers podcast. We're off to uh, South Africa today on the outskirts of Johannesburg, where ASX listed West Wits Mining is uh, well, again, ready to become a gold producer, a long-term gold producer, a low-cost gold producer from its uh, projects uh, on the outskirts of Johannesburg. Now, I'll just mention that the code is WWI, last traded at 1.4 cents for a market cap of $33 million. And the, that, yes, that has to be uh, looked at. If uh, this company was in WA, it uh, would be multiple of uh, that market cap uh, because it's got more than 4 million ounces in global resource and more importantly, uh, you know, on a million ounces on one of uh, its uh, projects that it's uh, actually getting moving on with a production horizon of 70,000 ounces coming over 18 years and then with a, a broader picture of getting to 200,000 ounces over time as you'd expect when you've got 4 million ounces plus resource in the bag. I've said enough, we'll get on to uh, what the company says with Michael Connor, the chairman. G'day, Michael. Welcome to the podcast. G'day, Barry. Good to be with you. Well, Michael, uh, things have been moving along. Um, probably a bit uh, slower than everyone would like, but uh, getting there, there's uh, a golden horizon, dare I say it, uh, at one of the projects, the Kuala Shallows. Tell us a bit about Kuala Shallows. Well, Kuala Shallows, Barry, is... is stage one of what we see as a larger project, but it's the stage of the project that was most accessible with ore exposed basically at surface um, in an area that's been mined for 130 years. You know, that was quite an unusual thing to find and, and the grades are running at three to five grams. So, you know, we felt that was quite unique um, and that was clearly the, the sweet spot to attack first. Uh, we put that into a, a DFS, which we released last year and then updated again this year. Um, and it's showing a very robust project, as you just gave some general outline on. I think the uh, low capex of around US $54 million, uh, all the sustaining costs of uh, under 1000 US, and the post-tax MPV of US 255 So when, uh, when can we see first production? Well, we're trying to finalise at the moment. We're making a lot of progress on finalising I hate to use that term, but the capital stack for um, funding of the project. Uh, we, we've been, we've recently announced a couple of uh, uh, letters, expressions of interest, and in indicated terms we've reached with with two sources to take uh, first tier debt funding to a total of 26 million US, uh, which which you know that basically I think back breaks the back of of the key sort of element of funding. The more we can fund. As a, as a small cap on on debt like that on bank terms is the better in terms of non-dilution to shareholders and and return on the asset. So so that's been pleasing to get that. We haven't got it finally in place, but we think uh, the technical side of it's been received very well, and we're we're moving into the into the legal due diligence side to complete that. Um, once it, it's like all these things, I often say to people, you know, it, it you, it's like being at a dance barrier and no one gets up to dance. You've got to sort of get the key part locked in first, and getting that locked in, I think, will make the rest of it. Um, 
more like a downhill process from here. We are talking to um, several parties at the moment about how we fill um, the rest of the, the capital requirements and we're making good progress and I think we'll have something to say on that in the near future. Right. So once that was uh, locked away and I presume you had some rough sort of timetable, you would uh, be able to get into production fairly quickly or a timeline on that as well? Yeah, there's a, there's a um, you know, the bit, it, we can't do it on a podcast, but there's a photo on our website and on our presentation on the front page that shows the, the current status at Cryola Shallows from the air and it'll show you that we've actually done pretty much all of the preparatory work to have this mine ready to go. Uh, we, we raised some money at the end of 2021 and we took made the commitment to go forward and reopen the decline, um, extend it and also widen it and, and modernise it. We also put in the basic site infrastructure, including um, diesel workshops, um, change rooms, offices, uh, water, potable water, car parks, uh, security fencing, all the things we needed. And that means that basically we, we, we've, all, we've actually already extracted about three, a small amount of oil, 3,000 tonnes, which is on the pad there. So, so we're sort of in a position where once we remobilise the contractor, um, that you know, it, 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 it's estimated to take four to six weeks, give or take a bit, it may take a bit more. But basically this is a project where because of the work we've done already, it should be getting into producing oil within that sort of time frame. So we're not talking about six months or five months or 10 months. We're talking about in a matter of weeks. And then we will then proceed to uh, build a stockpile. Uh, we, uh, we're aiming for a stockpile of 30,000 tonnes of oil before we start sending uh, ore to the plant because we are using a, a toll treat plant in this uh, stage one. And it will take us probably five months to build that stockpile. Cause, you know, obviously, we don't want to start sending or to the plant in dribs and drabs, we want to send you know a decent amount of ore each month and have a steady supply, so we need a stockpile. Right, and um, quite a sizable operation. Mm-hmm. Well, that's seventy thousand ounces per annum over the uh, first nine years, but uh, with a sort of eighteen-year mine life potentially. Yeah, but, uh... yeah, we were pleased with that. Originally, the original DSS came out at about fifty-five thousand ounces steady state, but. When we got underground last year and did the preparatory work, they were able to identify other areas and unused stopes that were sitting there from... I mean, this this mine has been... It's only been developed basically level one, level two. So it's a virgin ore body, but there are some stopes available there. So once they did that work, they were able to identify and, and get more certainty on, on the ore body. They were able to um, upgrade the production numbers and that's what's come back with the 70,000 steady state. Yeah. Now, you do have a, a black empowerment partner there? We do. Um, yeah, when thinking about Westwich, you've got to um, take into account in terms of assessing the company's project that we have um, a black empowerment partner as part of the mining legislation there. Uh, we, we effectively, well, we own 66.6% of the project. Um, the black empowerment partner was critical in the mining uh, right approval process stage and, and various other approvals. We have all permits and approvals on this mine and the Black Empowerment Partner, it's fair to say probably we wouldn't have achieved that without them. So they've done a lot of the heavy lifting in the early stages. Um, I think they're quite disposed towards selling down. Uh, some of the legislation now has changed and enables us to sell down once we've been empowered. So I think going forward, we would have a goal of increasing our stake um, in the project and um, providing some exit plan, partial exit plan or exit plan for the current BE partner. So um, but at the moment, it is 66.6%. So, yes, you need to look at the numbers and, and do your calculations according to that uh, dilution. I did backpedal a bit and give a bit of a historical content 
context here. You're operating in the uh, central Rand Goldfield. Right? Yeah, we are. Which is what one of five that make up what everyone knows as the fable with water around you know one point five billion ounces of gold, etc. Yeah, it's a it's an incredible um, story when you get there and actually get your mind around it and and see what was there um, and what still is there. I mean, it, it's a it's an area that you get various estimates from various sources, but generally all the sources I've looked at, you can safely say twenty five to thirty percent of the world's known gold to date has been produced in that field. Uh, so it's a it's a staggering <laughs> statistic to to and you know this particular um, area where we are. Our footprint's a little bit smaller. We've sort of um, we sort of rationalised the footprint a little bit, but if you look at the two historical leases that sort of make up the bulk of our mining right, they were the historical DRD lease and the Rand lease, which are on the western end of the main central Rand goldfield. Um, those leases, just to get our heads around, I mean, you you know a lot about Australian production. They produced up until they ceased producing in early two thousand. They produced forty one million ounces. And and at that point in 2001, the owner was a um, an ASX listed company at that point, and they had declared a jork resource on our lease of 12.8 million ounces. So we've rehabilitated 4.28, and we're still probably going to go higher with some other areas we're bringing in. But we've been very selective in terms of not looking at pillar recovery and deep areas and so forth. But you know, just on as I say, Quala Shallows is from surface. You know, so it's um. It's quite an impressive ore body that I don't think has been fully exploited by any 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 way here. You know, it's it's a long way from being fully exploited. Nothing simple in gold mining, but a, a simple start to uh, what could be a decades-long uh, presence in the goldfield. Yeah, and I mean, it's not simple, you're right, but the, the, the unusual thing about this ore body too in terms of, I think, what you see elsewhere is that it's basically concentric stacked reefs and... We're mining mainly the Kimberley Reef, which is in the southern area, so one of the one of the later laid down reefs. But all these reefs have been studied for a long time. They've been drilled. Um, we had ten thousand maps, so you know some enormous amount of material that we've tried to put into digital form. So there's a really and they're very consistent in terms of looking at it as a non-geologist how they work. I mean, they work on a forty-five degree angle, about a meter and a half to two meters thick, and they run almost parallel to each other at that from surface down, open at depth. So they're not we're not sort of um, mining, you know, if you like, exotic type deposits that are hard to follow. Yeah, uh, very true. And again, there's uh, some very good diagrams in the uh, recent watch on the Yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, I've seen um, comments from yourself that um, South Africa is too good a jurisdiction for international investors to ignore. Now, that goes to you have more than four million ounces. I think your enterprise value per ounce is what six dollars. You know, short of giving away shares in the street, I don't know what else you're supposed to do. But I'm just saying, can you talk to why we think that there should be a, a greater international in, interest in the you know, what a future for big time gold in the water end? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a you know we can theorise and have and speculate about why South Africa has. The reputation it has, um, I'm a bit perplexed by some of that. I can sort of, I, I have theories as to why that's the case. But in terms of looking in, in a sort of a, a direct sense at the jurisdiction, I've been travelling there first as an advisor to other mining companies, and then since 2008 with this company's involvement in the jurisdiction. And I've been going there, therefore, for you know 17, 18 years, and up until COVID, was probably there six, seven times a year on 
you know, long, long-term sort of um, deployments, if you put it that way. I'm a lawyer by um, uh, profession. Um, I, I worked for, in the stock exchange in the 1980s. I understand the way the international securities and, and mining legislation works. Uh, and so I, I think I'm in a reasonable position. I've worked around the world in other trans- jurisdictions. I, I think I've got a reasonable ability to objectively judge a jurisdiction. And Frank, I've worked in places like Indonesia where I really have problems. But you know, it, it's to me, if you look at the objective um, parameters, you know, affecting your, your judgment on it, I, I think they're, they're positive. I mean, I, I, you know, it's got a very good um, legal system. Uh, which you can get efficient and quick remedies on any issues that arise because the jury, the, the judiciary have been shown to be independent and fearless. Um, they've done that with politics. They've done it everywhere. And I don't think anyone with, with any objectivity could argue with that. We've certainly had access to the courts at times and we've had very quick rectification of any issues we had. Um, they've got a fearless and independent press, which I think is a shining example to what uh, the media as an institution should be, um, it's as I, you know, I've said to people before. I mean, President Zuma, who clearly was um, creating issues and, and acting in a manner that wasn't appropriate, was basically removed by the press in terms of their campaign to expose his activities. And you know, so I think the issues that mainly happen in South Africa has been the transition, obviously, from the pre-apartheid to the post-apartheid years, and a lot of people have been displaced and lost their position, the privileged position they had, and therefore there's people with access to grind. I think also you've got a one-party democracy which still has a majority that until the country matures to a multi-party democracy. Look, I'm not going to lecture everyone on those sort of issues. I, you know, that's my sort of view. I can look, I think that, you know, while you've got that sort of the, the government with a, with a majority that's unassailable or seems unassailable, I think it's it's being encroached now, um, you're going to end up with corruption in the public service and, and inefficiencies and accepting lower than, than, than optimum performance. And I think, you know, people, cronyism and those sort of things creep in in any sort of democratic system. We know that even here in Australia it does. But there we, where there's no sort of strong opposition to threaten to remove the government, it's even more prevalent. And I think that's basically what's been the underlying issue. But those issues are slowly resolving themselves. Uh, just continuing that theme of it, this, um, the recent financing from uh, Wingfield running or bigger shareholders, um, I understand that was uh, Texas money came from high net worths and family offices. So presumably they run their DD before uh, thinking about uh, keeping in uh, US ten million dollars to the project. Yeah, I mean those guys, the, the the original Wingfield founders have been with us for about four years as shareholders. They're the largest shareholder, but they've clubbed together their investor group in in um, Houston, and they're all ex energy guys, property guys. Um, they love gold. They're all very bullish on gold in Texas, I can assure you of that. And they see West Wits as extremely undervalued and a, and a project they want to support. So from my perspective, what's more pleasing about the Wingfield involvement is that, you know, um, it's hard to quantify these things, Barry, but, but Wingfield, it's not just the money they bring to the table, it's the people. You know, they're bringing us into a group of really um, powerful, um, strong investor savvy people. Um, some of whom are already running major funds on their own. And that introduces us to a whole new investor pool that we can hopefully uh, present ourselves to and, and, and seek further support and grow with them. You know, so, so that's what's really exciting about Wingfield. Yeah. And making up that other part of that US-26 uh, in the commitments uh, or understandings that you mentioned was the Industrial Development Corp. Um, Explain to uh, investors here what uh, the IDC's role is in South Africa. 
Yeah, the IDC is a government-owned um, entity that's not controlled directly by the government, but obviously they appoint a board. It functions like a bank. Um, it's um, it's there to um, obviously promote uh, projects that it thinks are going to be good for the economy and good for jobs and, and various things. So it has that sort of mandate. Um, there's similar type bodies here at the Clean Energy um, Institute, you know, the, the Clean Energy um, Committee here. And that's it's that sort of institution. What I would say about it, it's not a recent invention. You know, people look at it sometimes and think, oh, is that just something that the government's come up with now? It's been around for 80 years. So it's been around post-war all through the 50s, 60s, 70s, doing this job both pre-apartheid and post-apartheid. So it's a well-understood, uh, well-run um, institution in its own right with a large balance sheet. Um, I, you know, And they have been um, very supportive uh, they are very keen to see this project go. I've met with their head guys. Um, they think it's great. It's, it's, it's producing up to 900 jobs in an area that desperately needs jobs around Soweto. And um, they say this is the first people that came here to invest in a gold mine in a long time. You know, So they, they want to see it as a sort of an exemplar project to attract others. And again, it's quite amazing. It's all within, what, 15 k's or so of Johannesburg. Yeah, that's another advantage we have in the sense that it, it's uh, it's in a sort of an old mined out area, so it's not we're not talking about a pristine environment. But we, because of the proximity, uh, you know, we have access to all the things you need to support um, your mine. You know, we have access to labour. We don't have to provide housing and transport. It's all on our doorstep. We have uh, all of our key management people live within twenty minutes of the mine. Uh, we have um, our equipment supplier. I think I went and visited them when I was over there about six weeks ago, you know, their, their, their workshops and where they maintain their equipment and repair it and produce it is, is 25 minutes away. So, you know, it's, it's that sort of, um, that's what's driving the steady state all in sustaining cost under night. It's under $900 now. It's 877, I think. So, you know, that's what's driving it, the, the accessibility. People are also, you know, the other sort of elephant in the room is the power um, issues in South Africa with a lot of publicity on that. And there is... Um, they're still having um, load shedding there. It's getting better. But even with load shedding, I mean, in our first 15 months, you know, maybe nine, 15 months, we're operating on diesel anyway. Um, but we now have approval to to connect to to ESCOM power. But even with ESCOM going out for three, even it went out three hours a day, which is about the average, I think, at the moment, um, you know, we, we can just fire the diesels up. We're still getting the ESCOM power at about one quarter the cost of diesel. So, you know, if I'm in West Australia or Northern Queensland, I'm not going to have mains power. I'm going to have to put in a very expensive solar or some other sort of system. Um, uh, just before we uh, wrap things up there, um, the market cap, 30.2 uh, or 33 million. Um, so, but there is more than uh, the Mitzvah uh, Rand gold project. You uh, have a JV with Rio Tinto in the Patterson range. Yeah, we do. We have ground in uh, Mount Cecilia in the Patterson range. It's about, um, I think it's about, it's about 70 k's, not 80 k's from Winu, uh, west of the Rio Discovery at Winu. It's probably about 180 k's north of, of, of Telfa. Um, it's on that sort of vine fault system. We, we looked at it, we did um, ourselves, we did some um, airborne studies and then some ground studies and got some very interesting signatures that got them excited at the, um, you know, the, the geologists and the um, uh, the, the advisors or consultants on that. So that in turn attracted Rio's interest because I think they used the same consultants and they came in on a farm in there, which they're sort of, they're, they're halfway sort of through the first stage of it, which is basically, you know, um, four years to spend $4 million to earn 51%. 
they've done their initial drilling. We actually got some very interesting gold intersections, but Rio obviously focusing, looking at the base metals, that's their preference. So we're sort of reassessing at the moment where to go next with it. Um, but um, having a partner like Rio in it, I think is very appropriate. They're obviously got the size and scale expertise and the manpower in the region to make life a lot easier than what it would be for a junior like us trying to mount that sort of project uh, exploration program ourselves. All right, so I want to watch that. So, Michael, we might be repeating a few things here, but uh, let's just sum it up for investors, what they should be looking out for, say, in the next six to 12 months. Yeah, I think that now that we've um, looked like we've got that um, debt position under control, I think that we're looking to get the rest of the funding sort of uh, timeline and mapped out. I mean, bear in mind, because we're not building a plant, uh, you know, we have a, a 30 month peak funding. Like uh, this, these funds are not all needed tomorrow, Barry. You know, it's a, it's a sequ- sequential use of funds while we're developing the mine. So it's not like we need, we're building a plant, we probably need an extra 100 million up front. You know, we don't need that. So we can start for as little as five or 10 million and get this thing going uh, and then take the other funding progressively through the, through the cycle. So I think that once people appreciate that, they'll see there's a real, um, you know, it's reasonable to expect that this will start very soon. We get the rest of it in place pretty soon. And you're going to see a company that's actually making the transition uh, from, from feasibility into production very quickly, given the preparatory work we've done, which is demonstrated by the photograph I referred to. So I think that's the exciting part of the next three to six months. You'll see the mine start and you'll see um, activity in line with the, the DFS mine plan. And we'll be able to keep reporting on uh, there'll be a lot of news flow as we as we reach, reach each milestone. Yeah, and in a way, it'll be a proof of concept uh, to uh, start then start thinking about pushing out to uh, bigger and bigger production targets and perhaps two hundred thousand ounces. Sure, and as soon as as soon as we get this thing stabilised and on track and going, we are we've already done some preliminary studies with our external consultants on the project two hundred that you've referred to. You know, as you said earlier, the ore body we're not going to run out of gold. So the issue is. Um, you know, how do we best exploit this wonderful ore body? Uh, they've mapped out a, a, a process that shows us going to 200,000 ounces. That would require our own plant, which will take, you know, let's be realistic, it'll take four or five years to, to design and, and, and um, permit that. But we'll be this thing will be chugging along quite strongly in the, in the interim. And once we uh, take that step, we'll just integrate this project into the larger project and start the larger project. So lots of blue sky, hopefully, for people to see there. Absolutely. There you go, folks. Very interesting story. Um, Near-term production uh, on its way uh, with a bigger picture to emerge over time in uh, the famous Witzwater Ram Base in South Africa. So, Michael, thanks for your time today. Uh, Interesting story. Watching that interest. Thanks, Barry. Appreciate it.